page 11. Bodhidharma's vast emptiness. Emperor Wu of Liang asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the main point of this holy teaching? Vast emptiness? Nothing holy, said Bodhidharma. Who are you standing in front of me? Asked the emperor. I do not know, said Bodhidharma. The emperor didn't understand. <clears throat> Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and went to the kingdom of Wei. Later, the emperor raised this matter with his advisor, Duke Ji. The advisor asked, Your Majesty, do you know that Indian, that Indian sage was? Do you know who that Indian sage was? No, I don't, said the emperor. That was Avalokita Shavara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, carrying the seal of the Buddha's heart and mind. The emperor felt a sudden regret and said, send a messenger to call him back. Dukji told him, your majesty, even if everyone in the kingdom went after him, he wouldn't return. So what did you notice? A lot of you are muted. Starlet, what did you notice? On the first page, the first time it was read, it was vast emptiness, nothing holy. And, oh, uh, well. It, it's so outrageous to not, you know, play to him, right? Well, the thing is that the way I understood it was vast emptiness, nothing holy. I was thinking vast emptiness, the emptiness is nothingness. So then nothing holy. I was like, so is this about the nothingness being holy? And I was just stuck on that. But then the second time that it was read, I took it with, no, he was just dismissing. So the emperor was like saying, so what is the main, the main point of this holy teaching? And he was just like dismissive, just vast emptiness. There's nothing holy here. That's what I understood on the second reading. And I then, and I may be so wrong, but okay, <laughs> I'm going to say it out loud. And I think the emperor was like, how dare you talk to me like that? <laughs> it's like, you're supposed to be here teaching me about holy things and you're wasting my time. And, 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 and then I think he left because he was scared of what the emperor might do to him. And then I think that when the emperor found out whom he was and what he represented in being compassion, I think the reason why he wouldn't have, he wouldn't come back would be because the emperor only gave value to the words that he said 
once he knew whom he was. And wisdom, it comes without, it can come from anyone at any time. And it's not just, you need to have clout in order to be wise. And I think that's kind of like saying Denver would never recognize wisdom. Okay, so now I'm gonna be quiet. Thank you. Okay, I knew he'd talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, when you, you know, you can say, show me the first page or the second page. I don't know if I no, can. It's okay. Um, when he asked him, what is it about? And he was saying, um, vast emptiness, nothing holy. For me, um, how I interacted was that he was answering him truthfully. It's vast emptiness and in vast emptiness, everything is one, right? There's no, um, there's no division. Nothing is singled out. It's just, it's oneness. So there's nothing holy. And when, for me, when it's something holy, this is elevated above everything else. And for me, it's just emptiness where it's oneness and unity. And it just is, it's just, everything is just is so he was answering him truthfully and when he said well who are you standing before me he also says I don't know because he cannot speak for him you know I, I cannot tell Starlet who I am to her only she can answer that question you know so for me he was being very honest but because the emperor didn't understand you know he was he was not ready he was not ready so the Bodhisattva left. And then, you know, after he left, he realized, oh, you know, he wanted him back, like Solid said, because he knew um, who he was, not because he understood what he was offering. And to me, he wouldn't return because the emperor is still not ready. He's not operating from a place of understanding and knowing, right? So there's, he, he's not going to come back. So that's my... Um, interaction with it. Thank you. No, Nelda. Um, the sentence that sits most with me is on page two. And it, yes, and I and and I agree um, with Jay that when he said I don't know, it's because everything is dependent arising. I mean, how do you all? If I say I'm I'm Nelda, and you know, if he had said I'm um, Avalokiteshvara, then that creates this construct. But but the sentence that sticks with me is when. Um, Dukshi says that was Alabakita Shvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. 
And so I sit with that. That just really stands out. And, and for me, the reason that he would not come back and why the Duke knew that he would not come back is he had already given the king a complete and full offering. He had, he had handed him the truth of, of the Dharma, and that is emptiness. He didn't hide anything from him, as most teachers don't. He had handed it to him in the simplest form. And that is by saying nothing, as Jay said, is elevated. It's not a matter of holy. It's a matter of emptiness. I don't know who I am because it's all a matter of emptiness. And um, I think that was quite compassionate to to get hand when you give someone the truth of the matter that's the most compassionate gift you can give truth in that lovely gentle way he did so he gave all he had to give so he wasn't going to come back that's what i take from it anyone else or you want to get to the commentary I would like to ask a question. Yes. What is the meaning of Avalokiteshvara and Bodhisattva? Well, a, a, a Bodhisattva is one who rather than, than uh, becomes who, an enlightened being who stays back on earth to save all beings. Oh. And Avalokitesvara was a bodhisattva. I, there's many versions of this koan and, and um, I think that's more metaphorical. Bodhidharma was a famous, our, one of our famous ancestors who brought um, Buddhism from India to China. So uh, I haven't read uh, that in this koan before that he calling him saying that he was Avalokiteshvara, but I think it was like like if one of us called each other Avalokiteshvara. It's it's in that sense that he wasn't to me. But let's see. I'm really curious what John Terrence says about that. Thank you. Should we go on? Okay. So we'll read in this order. We've read Cody and and uh, Jay have read. Oh, so I'm next. We'll read in alphabetical order. And then it will be uh, Melissa. Melissa. Yeah, probably me. Melissa and then Milan and then uh, Nandia, and then Nelda, and then Vivian. Yeah. Did I miss anyone? No. And uh, what about Starlet? <laughs> oh. I thought you said Starlet, sorry. Okay. And Starlet before Vivian. Okay. To study, the Buddhist way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by 10,000 things. Hey, hey, Dogen. 
Poetry arrived to look for me. I don't know. I don't know where it came from, from winter or river. I don't know how or when. No, there weren't voices. There weren't words or silence. You are in a tight spot and nothing has worked. You probably think you need a transcendent piece of wisdom to rely on. You might think that you need a foothold think that you need a foothold or a handhold. You might think that you are that you need to improve yourself or your skills in some way. Here is a koan that suggests another possibility. The way through might be by not improving yourself and not finding a railing to take hold of. Here is a koan about how the way through can appear naturally if you're open to taking an unfamiliar shape. The koan contains a legend about how this understanding was brought to China from India. Milan. Bodhidharma past emptiness. Emperor Gu had two unusual experiences that challenged his life. These essentially inward events led him to certain achievements that are remembered today more than a millennium after his death. The first experience happened when his armies had to repel an invasion, invasion of horsemen from the Northwest. The horsemen carried with them whatever they owned and they weren't afraid to die. The emperor had himself ascended to the throne in the standard way, but overthrowing the previous weakened monarch. And he believed that he understood the writers. The steady to study his troops, to steady his troops, he visited the front lines and sat in the firelight on a small hill. This is when the emperor had his first peculiar experience. Banners whipped loudly overhead and the wind felt as though it were inside his chest, tearing and banging. Something of the desert's tedious immensity was conveyed to him. The wind cleansed him of any anxiety and oops, is Melissa supposed to read? Melissa read. Oh, okay, sorry. The wind cleansed him of any anxiety and also took away other things, the solidity of which he had never questioned before. It took away his august rank and his name. He stopped planning mm -hmm. and he also stopped thinking about the outcome of the battle. When everything he usually depended upon was gone, he knew immediately what to do. In the pre-dawn, just before the nomads liked to attack, he sent horsemen into the center of their camp and immediately pulled them back again. As the pursuit came, the center of his line kept falling back. 
The nomads rode into the vacuum he had opened and he closed on them from both sides. After his return, while the minister celebrated, the emperor went into the garden to be alone. On the hillside, he had felt quite certain that he was going to win. At that moment, in the wind and the vast land, he was small and unimportant, and this sense of his unimportance allowed him to be clear about what needed to be done. Being important now seemed to him to be just a prejudice that confined him. And I think Starlet. Oh, sorry. Once he focused about having a special point to his life, he felt remarkably free for an emperor. There were some complications. On certain days, he considered leaving his room, but couldn't find a reason to. He still gave interviews at court before dawn, but was sometimes beset by a sense of unreality. Shedding his old beliefs had not been so hard. He hadn't done anything to achieve his new way of seeing things. It was a gift from wind and war. Having opinions about life, ideas about being an emperor, about his own dignity and the, mo the motives of his ministers, having to dislike this person and admire that one, pain him now. He could feel these familiar attitudes as walls crowding around him. Yet some understanding, he was certain, eluded him. He did what was necessary out of duty and didn't mourn his old certainties, but he lacked the light. There had to be more to life than the freedom of pointlessness. The emperor sought hints from the world. He noticed that he had remorse about the murders involved in his ascent to the throne. His qualms, as he thought of them, were the beginning of a new curiosity about his own life. At the same time, he began to entertain famous teachers who passed through. Sometimes they were helpful. They usually praised him and gave carefully bland advice, often involving diets. Sometimes it was even good advice, but the question he had was something like a feeling, a mingling of excitement and uneasiness hard to formulate, and advice didn't seem to touch it. Is anything surprising so far? No. To me- To anyone? Yeah, go on, Starlet. To me, it's surprising that he didn't understand the con, the, the um, vast emptiness, because he actually gained this, this wisdom when he was in the vast emptiness of the desert. And when it's empty, it's just air. So I thought he would have been able to understand that. I'm surprised by that. So what I love about this koan having decided to say hello to me today is that I 
absolutely understand the sentence. He did what was necessary out of duty and didn't mourn his whole certainties, but he lacked delight. There had to be more to life than the freedom of pointlessness, because I think that's where we can get with this practice. If everything is nothingness and we, we, you know, we're born, we're part of this vast, we're all one, we die. It's easy to, for me to get to that freedom of pointlessness. And so I'm very curious about where this koan is taking me. And we read um, last week that John Tarrant um, thought that the, the point of koans was happiness. This is a path toward happiness. So it, it goes along with this. Okay, who's, that was Vivian. Then, then the emperor heard of a sage from India. The man was himself a legend. It was said that it had taken him three years to make his way overseas, over the seas. <clears throat> the emperor knew nothing about the sea, but he imagined waves as the grass of the steps in the high wind. He tried thinking of China as an ocean that he passed through and nomads as pirates with horses. Though his own obligations prevented him from undertaking such journeys, he respected this kind of solitary accomplishment. When this sage arrived at court, he turned out to be a genuine barbarian, red hair, blue eyes, dressed in rags. His name was Bodhidharma, which was not really a personal name, just some sort of title in Sanskrit. The clothes of the ministers were gorgeous and in the red and gold audience room, the visitor managed to seem nondescript, which was an achievement for a barbarian. He didn't have the air of one deprived or poor. The main contrast with the ministers was not in how he dressed. In a place where everyone wanted something, he did not. The minister's rank was displayed by differences in insignia and dress. The sage made no claims about rank. He didn't either push himself forward into the emperor's notice or pull himself back into hiding. He stood quietly and his presence affected the court until everyone fell silent. The emperor noticed that his own thoughts were becoming simple. He remembered the taste of vegetable soup. <laughs> Even the most elegant palace, said the emperor, is also a burden. Then he stood up as if to approach the visitor's stillness. He wanted to find a road deeper into his own life and asked, I have funded many monasteries. What merit have I earned? No merit, said Bodhidharma. That's a very important part of the story. With a jolt, the emperor thought, here is someone who knows. It's not about building things up. It's about undoing everything. He realized that he had fallen into being an emperor again and underestimated the sage and perhaps himself. He had not dared to ask a question important to his own life. 
the memory of a hillside and a battle rose up in him. He had no language. He had had no language for what he had undergone, had had no one to stand beside him and say, yes, I see it too. Now the emperor felt the man's presence as a kind of sympathy, which he longed to explore. Can I just express something sure. here? Okay. Yes. I love the fact that he said he realized that he had fallen into being an emperor again. And, you know, that has been, um, I can say for myself, that has been a challenge because, you know, um, sometimes old patterns of behavior is, even though I try to be very mindful, I see myself when I fall into old patterns of behavior. You know, and sometimes I need that um, jolt or uh, um, hmm, reflection or something to um, remind me. And I guess that's why I also do the practice, right? It's a reminder every day to do the practice. So I really like that it said that. Thanks. Thank you. What is the main point of this holy teaching? Vast emptiness, nothing holy, said Bodhidharma. Again, the quiet voice that didn't ask to be heard. The emperor's senses became keen. It was as if the two men were sitting together on a bench in a temple garden with all the time in the world. He wanted to reach the other man's mind or perhaps go deeper into his own mind. Another thought came to him. If I'm an emperor, how can I also be a person? So he asked, who are you standing in front of me? I do not know, said Bodhidharma. You're muted. Next person. Oh, Nantia, you're welcome to go on if you'd like. Mm. Well, that's enough. Okay. This statement stopped the emperor completely. He began to feel a delightful insubstantiality. The emperor's sadness over the shameful things he had done fell away. It fell into that emptiness. The emperor's worry over when more attacks would come from the north also disappeared. Inside himself, he couldn't find an emperor. He felt capable of many things, but not quite yet. The words, I don't know, I don't know, stuck in his head like a line from a song. For a moment, he walked alone and was content. Around him, emptiness flowed in all directions. Then, as he looked about, the palace returned and the court officials 
started to whisper to each other. He was fascinated by how clear everything was. Someone else spoke, and Bodhidharma began to withdraw, as if he were himself a spell that had been lifted. If he had stayed, I don't know, might have lost his power in the court only one person noted his going. Later, the emperor raised this matter with his advisor, Duke Xi. The advisor asked, your majesty, do you know who that Indian sage was? No, I don't, said the emperor, realizing how much emperors take for granted. That was Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion carrying the seal of the Buddha's heart and mind. The emperor felt a sudden regret and said, send a, manager, send a messenger to call him back. Duke Xi told him, your majesty, even if everyone in the kingdom went after him, he, would not, he wouldn't return. I met him, but didn't meet him, said the emperor. And eventually the wor those words were put on his grave. <clears throat> this was his way of expressing his own, I don't know. Afterward, the emperor noticed more about his own life. He noticed that when he didn't expect people to please him, he enjoyed seeing them. That seemed to be a clue. He found that he enjoyed building temples. It was on, it wasn't a matter of duty. Then he went further. The emperor gave himself up to temples as a slave, seeking inward freedom in an exterior narrowness and forgetting how to be an emperor. At such times, he felt full of love. He dug ditches and planted gardens. He wasn't an emperor or a murderer. The work took away his sense of self, like the Indian sage. He didn't know who he was, he was and was free until he became himself again. The strategy was also an excellent fundraising device for the temples, since the game was that his ministers had to ransom him with huge gifts. And he enjoyed tormenting his ministers in this mild way. After he was ransomed, he would live contentedly in the palace for a while until a feeling of suffocation and became once more unendurable, and he would give himself up to a temple and be a gardener once more. Do you know, guys know that word? I don't. Oh, food and drink. Surfing. Yeah, an excessive amount of something. An illness caused or regarded as being caused by excessive eating and drinking. He died of it. But look at the last one. It says he had a feeling of suffocation surfeit. And the last one says to desire no more of something as a result of having consumed or done it to excess. Hmm. That's probably closer, don't you think? 
All right, continue. Yeah. Bodhidharma went away without carrying even one opinion about the emperor and sat for nine years in the mountains facing a cliff. I don't know continues to murmur century after century. People wait and live inside questions. Mistakes led through doors. Or oh, is it lead? Mistakes lead through doors. Hmm. The idea that there is a wisdom that the universe just gives to you without reference to teachers or scriptures came from Bodhidharma to the reader of this page and is happening right now. Working with the koan. A man is madly in love one day and the next cares only to go fishing. A country goes to great, <laughs> great lengths to make an alliance and within a year has changed sides. This is not just fickleness and greed. There is an insubstantiality to human reasons and motives and identity. You may make an expedition to meet people in loincloths as photographed by National Geographic, but find that they have copies of the article with them and have taken to wearing Nikes and t-shirts with pictures of hip hop artists on them. Sorry. What we believe about ourselves does not stand up to examination. So there is always the problem of describing our own lives in a plausible way. The old teachers named this insubstantiality emptiness. They thought that contrary to the medieval idea that something cannot come out of nothing, everything we do comes out of nothing. Occasionally awaking from sleep, you may wonder, where on earth am I? Or fleetingly, in a more disoriented awakening, the question becomes, who am I? Or even, what am I? These moments when you open your eyes in the world, as if for the first time, like a newborn, can be delicious. With the uncertainty comes a feeling of freedom. In the same tradition, you are asked about Bodhidharma's three answers. No merit, vast emptiness, and I do not know. One place to start is with the idea of no merit. So that's usually how this koan begins with the question, I build all these temples, do I get any merit? But he doesn't included in you know in what we read at first i think it's nandia no merit how much do you do for praise how many things do you say just to make an impression to others what are you really achieving when you try to make an impression and how many accounts do you have to keep if you didn't do things for merit and advancement, or if you didn't act with motives at all, what would life be like? At work, in bed, alone in a room? 
Even alone in a room, you can be consumed with wanting other people to see you in a good light. Can you imagine how things would be without that kind of wanting? So to some Buddhists, merit is really important and it determines how you're going to be reborn. Mm. And uh, so this was quite a, a shock to the emperor, supposedly, that uh, it didn't make any difference. He thought that he would do it. And the, the Burmese, we have a Burmese temple here in Austin, and the Burmese, some of the Burmese keep a logbook of the things they do for merit. And also the things they do that will, I don't know if, if it's both ways, but it was funny that, that, that I saw a, a, a room air conditioner there in the window and there was a Dyna tape label on it. Who had given that, that uh, air conditioner? And then mm. in, their, in their newsletter, they, they tell who, gives, who gave money and how much. And they have a whole list from the, who gave the most to who gave the least. So, so merit is really important and they're really, and they, and their whole lives are not sitting, but serving the, the monks and they bring them their uh, noontime meal every day, which is their only meal. They have a little for breakfast and a little tea in the afternoon, but they, they feed them and take care of them. So this is the same issue I had when I was in the Christian tradition where people would do what they did to get into heaven rather than just out of sheer gratitude and love for God as they viewed God. Um, and it just seemed like such a, oh, I don't even know what sort of economic system to name it an exchange system an exchange system yeah and and it, and you know and in and, and i would take it i would take it back to my own parents do i did i do things for my parents or my brother and sisters just because i love them and just love them you know or did i do it because i expected some kind of game and that just seems like a very tainted relationship with God and, and life to me. Now, a good friend of mine in St. Louis would go to, she was Catholic and she would go to church on um, Sunday and she didn't like, like it very much, but she said it, it made sense to her to invest three hours a week so that she would go to heaven. So. I, I feel like the, um, in the cultures uh, in Southeast Asia, um, I've lived in Thailand and I've lived in Vietnam and the, the, the concept of um, reciprocity where, um, you know, I offer to the monks and I receive merit and teachings and they, come when someone is ill or someone dies or I think it's a lot what merit means in those cultures is a lot bigger than just I get a brownie point and a step closer to you know the big cheese kind of thing 
I think there's quite a lot culturally going on um, in this life. In in terms of what making merit means in those cultures. So yes, I, I've also seen the situation where it's very, very important for people to people become very identified with um what they've given and how much it costs and how regularly they give and but but i think there is also i think there's a lot embedded in that and um it it's not yeah i i just think that bears saying my mother used to uh, keep track. I I always thought somewhere in her room she must have had a book that she put marks in. And it wasn't so much um, to do with monetary things, but it was to do with what someone did for someone else. And if she felt she had done more for someone than they had done for her, eventually that person was um, like, wasn't a friend anymore, was no longer in her life. And I could never understand that concept. Um, and so she was very uh, disoriented with me because I, I didn't play the game. And, you know, I did things for her and people and whatever, just because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Um, so this idea of, and, and I often felt that then I wasn't given any merit for those things, right? because I didn't require it to be given back to me. So that was a very weird way of growing up. Um, to me, when, when he answers no merit, um, I took it as there is no merit for you in having built those temples because you didn't build them yourself pay for other people to do it, but that's not your work. So to me, I take it with, to get the merit for that, you have to be the one that literally does it. Who really but, what? I didn't hear the last four words. Who, who really? Who really does it, who really does the work. Oh. But do we ever really, um do anything completely singularly? Well, I mean, don't, don't, I mean. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. He ended up going, he gave himself a slave. He didn't even just go to work and get paid for the work that he would do. He actually made himself a slave. So all of the work that he did in building those temples were up where he's yes he did that if but i think i but, think the focus is much like in the christian tradition when you go back to the story of cain and abel when god rejects one's offering and not the others it's because of the heart with which they did it i don't necessarily know that you physically have 
to do the work. I think it's the heart mind with which you do it. And if you're doing it to get brownie points and you're keeping scores, Nandia was talking about how there's some other elements in Thailand and so on with this with a, a reciprocity, the, the picture that came to mind was the difference between the water cycle and how it just flows and things flow naturally and sort of a quid pro quo, like uh, Melissa's mother. Okay, I gave you, so now you have to give me in return. It's just much more fluid. And um, I, I hear more and more across traditions that it's the mind heart with which you do it it's not what you do it's well i think i didn't explain myself really oh well. i'm sorry starlet because the thing is that in medieval times the, the novel men catholics that had money they and they were not really good people some of them and they would just go ahead and say i'm going to purchase my way to heaven by having a church being built or giving money to the church. And that was a thing done in medieval times. But the point with that is you cannot purchase your way to heaven. You cannot do that. If you wanna get into heaven, you have to become worthy of being in heaven. And there's, so when I'm saying the no merit because he had had all these churches being built. He didn't build those churches. <laughs> if he get merit, merit for something like that, to me, it was what he did afterwards when he realized in order for me to become an emperor, I killed people. I was in a war. And I did things that I don't like. And I sometimes I can't stand myself for what I did. And I think that when he went and became a slave, you know, I think it was his way of trying to undo what he had done in the past. And I think that it was a way of being in the moment, just not having to be an emperor, not having to be anything else, but just be. And when he was a gardener, when he was building things, he was at peace with himself. And I think that's a way of being in the emptiness of being your own self. And that's how you can find whom you really are when you're not trying to be somebody, but you're just living the moment, each moment at a time. And I can be completely wrong, but that's just how I perceived it. Thank so you. just a quick, just a quick thing that uh, I had my hand raised for about a half an hour ago, but uh, I maybe it can't be seen. No. Or... Oh, oh, I can see it on the participant list, but not on the pictures of people. Oh, I see. Well, it just seems to me that from the moment uh, the statement was made, I was a slave, and then the ending, I, you know, I'm happy to just be a gardener. 
all of this is just identity. It's just, uh, it's not uh, being no one going nowhere. It's being invested in just like the, the commentary said, uh, being in the world in a certain way and being seen in a certain way as a slave, as a gardener. So we might think, oh, a gardener, that's much more lovely. You know, we're much more at peace. Your hands are in the dirt. You're, you're making things grow. A slave, it's, it's oppression. It's obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's not, <laughs> it's not uh, an onward leading thing. But it's all wrapped up in identity. And Bodhidharma was not about that. Very much not about that. So, well, yeah, to- Nandia, thank you for that point because this just goes to show. And I, Jay, you go ahead first. I'll go. I, no, I no, did- they're finished. Oh, no, okay. finish, finish. Because because it's another reminder of how language trips us up. I think the writer, well, I I'm speculating, right? I don't know what the writer was thinking. Um, I don't know that it was a, the role as a slave or the role as a gardener. I think what I gathered the 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 imprint that was left on me was and maybe it's because I am a gardener and I that is just sheer joy you know as you said hands in the earth right there with every little flower um in the moment and and that's the image I got but I also hear what you're saying because it can leave that impression of he just switched one title for another and somehow being being in the lower position was more honorable. And so I hear you. Yes. Thank you. Thank one, you for one your- thing. I'm sorry. Finish. No, I, you know, I love these discussions because again, for me, there's no, for me, there's no right and wrong. It just your perspective and you're offering it and making it fuller. So, um, but the imprint, I like that word, Nalda, thank you for that. The imprint it left on me was that that for me is the full embodiment of nothing holy. He did everything. He was a builder and a gardener and a whatever else that needed to be. And he was the emperor, nothing holy. There was nothing too much, too low for him to do and too high because he was nothing holy. And to me, it was that embodiment. And um, when he was talking about when one thing became too much again for me it was a lesson on um being one uh focusing on one thing or being um how how, what's what I want to say like when it's all about balance and like when we are when I'm saturated or when we are saturated in one thing it it's unhealthy you know, so for me, it's just lessons in this story. So it's just, I love how each of our viewpoints and our um, understanding is so, is different and is just rich. And I think it's beautiful. So thank you guys. One one thing that strikes me is that he he went from being the emperor to the gardener and the slave 
And we think about that as positions, but what it also is, is that the slave and the gardener are usually not recognized. If you went and asked somebody, who is your guard? I mean, who was the gardener you just walked by in, in, that, in that garden? They, they wouldn't know. What, who was the person that cleaned your house? If it, there was a slave, they wouldn't know. They might know their name, but they wouldn't know the person. And so I think in a way, too, it's going from being the, the person that is seen and that has the power and that, you know, has to make the decisions to a person who is not going to be asked to do any of that. A person who is not going to be seen by the public or recognized by the public. Um, and that's why that's really another reason why they can concentrate on on the gardening or the building of the temple, because they are not being inundated with having to make decisions. They are just who they are. But anyway, that's my thought. And can I just say, sorry. No, go ahead, Jay. No, no, no. Um, how... I also think it's lovely that they show us that, I don't know, I find joy when I'm in service. And it's just a reminder that when we are in service and we give freely, um, it comes back to us. You know what I mean? It just permeates everything and it comes back to us. And there's so much joy in the service. So thank you, guys. It's more so when you're giving out of joy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So this thing that I wanted to comment about also is about the part of this being related to happiness, the way of getting to be happy. The thing is that one cannot be happy when they know that they have done horrible things in the past and they need to atone for that. The thing is that sometimes we can be in our present day life and we may feel overwhelmed and that we cannot take it anymore and we can go for a run or we may go and sit down and listen to music. We, may, we find an outlet. For him, it was making himself a slave, making himself a gardener. But at the same time, it's also the other aspect of realizing this is what I did and I don't like that and I don't want to be like that anymore. And I think that's a very positive thing. But at the same time, is the other part that was talked about on here. It was what would happen if you don't have to be living your life with the expectation of what that other person wants from you or what you want from them. So him as an emperor, he will have many people saying, oh, I want this, I want that, and I can give you all of this and praise you and adulation and all of that. But at the same time, if we, in our personal lives, I think we may have all experienced the thing of, I want to do something to, be, to make my mom happy. 
I want to get an A on this test so my father can be proud of me. I want to, so you kind of make do things in your life in order to get the praise from your parent, your boss, your friend, whomever. But the problem is what happens when you're doing that and then you don't receive that praise because maybe your parents are not people that really pay much attention to you. Then it becomes something that can become very painful. When you do something for somebody, when you do something at your job and nobody recognizes it, that's gonna hurt you. But if you do things just because you want to do them, when you ace that test, just because you love studying history and you did it because you loved studying it and then you went, you ace the test and you got an A, yay. And then if it turns out that your parents come and say, oh, we're proud of you. Well, that's icing on the cake. But if your parents don't pay attention, it doesn't matter because you were doing what you wanted to do, what you enjoy doing. And I think that is part of being happy, not living with the expectation of being recognized by others or being, being praised by others. If it happens, that's fine, but it cannot be the goal. Can I... Um... Can I um, say something um, about how that has shown up in my life, what you talk about? Um, so when I was a kid, I, I know you guys are gonna find this very hard to understand, but um, I was very headstrong and independent. And um, when I was in my very early teens, um, I stopped showing my report card to my parents because I felt like it was my work and um, I felt the way I felt about it and I didn't do it to, uh, I didn't do the work. I got very good grades, but I didn't get them for them. But um, one, uh, one result of this was that um, my, my mom was very hurt by this. And um, she felt very sort of excluded and cut out and at the time, I don't think I really gave a shit about that. But the, the, the being who, you know, sort of what I, what I have and what I know now, I look back on that and I see how that was painful for her. And so it makes me look at another layer of our behavior, which is how it either holds others with care or it doesn't. So well, on the one hand, they, 
they were grades that I had earned. Um, reflecting on what I said a little while ago in this group, yeah, I earned those grades, but um, my parents helped create the conditions where it was possible for me to do the work and to, you know, have a place to, to study and to a desk to sit at. And um, I, I didn't see that then, but I do see it now. And anyway, just think it's layered. I'm glad you said that because it's really important how this moves through us and connects with our own experience. Go on, Nelda, did you want to say? Well, I was going to say, Nandia, as you were talking, this tremendous compassion for you came up in me because, I, and, and you don't need to explain, and I'm not trying to speculate or guess at, but a strong-willed child is strong-willed against something. And um, that's who my compassion was for, that child who felt they needed to hold that. And, and so I'm holding all of you, that child and the adult who looks back with a lot of compassion. There, there's this interesting book here. I'll uh, go off, but it's all about this. Um, how do I, uh, just a second. Kim, we can see it, Punished by Rewards. Yeah, and yeah. it's all about exactly what Nandia was talking about in a sense that what we're all talking about is that uh, when you're doing things for other people, it's not good. And, and the book contends that if you shouldn't say to a kid, I'm so proud of you but rather, you know, you should be so proud of yourself so that they don't get in this habit of doing things for other people. It's a really good book. Okay, should we go on? I don't know, no. how much, how yeah. many more pages do we have? It's brain full. Wow, we're not gonna finish. That's all right. We didn't read this paragraph, did we? No merit? Did we? Yes. Vivian's saying think... we did. What? We did. Oh. I read that. Okay. Then vast emptiness, nothing holy. Right. And who's reading? After Nandia? Is it Vivian? It's Nelda. Nelda. Okay. Right. Are we, how much are we going to, we're, gonna we're just going to go till 830. So what we'll have to do next time is continue. Does that sound good? I mean, I don't know a better alternative. No, that's fine. Vast emptiness, nothing holy. What is the mind like if it's not occupied with plans and schemes and the fears that the plans and schemes will fail? What if your unexamined beliefs were to fall away and you were to live without them? and also to live without the thought that you had given anything up. I do want to say something. 
Um, I understand the nothing holy, but there is an old country song <laughs> that's entitled Everything is Holy Now. And it essentially considers all sacred. And I much prefer that. <laughs> I don't know. If you were to put aside what you know because of what other people told you, how much of what you know did you truly know for yourself? If you look for the origin of your thoughts, of the life, of your universe, can you find it? Can you find where this moment comes from or where it goes home to? Driving home from a retreat in the Redwoods, I came into the small town of Occidental and seeing shops and houses realized, oh, the 21st century. But because I have spent a week forgetting what to expect and indeed forgetting who I am, I wouldn't be shocked if it were any century. A friend who is curious about the way the mind works for happiness or unhappiness spent an afternoon with a Hindu teacher. During their conversation, he asked the teacher, somewhat rhetorically, don't you know for sure that, wait, don't you know for sure at least that you are a human being? The teacher replied, in part. This was not the response my friend expected. His train of thought stopped and he considered whether he knew for sure if he was a human being. A gratifying silence had enveloped him and he realized that he had left the conversation hanging. Looking up, he saw the teacher laughing. Mm -hmm. Not knowing can be liberating. The same friend is married to a woman with children from a previous marriage. One morning, her young son came out in his pajamas and said, I have a terrible headache. Immediately, the boy's mother said, Perhaps it's because you ate too much ice cream last night. Straight away, the man said, perhaps it's because you didn't eat enough ice cream last night. Everyone laughed because either statement could have been true or untrue, not knowing why the boy had a headache. Everyone felt free. The old teachers thought that not to know is a step, is to step into life without repeating yourself. It is to forget the prejudices and comparisons that say, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, I'm good at this, I'm bad at that. If you practice don't know mind for long enough, perhaps you can learn how to be good at anything. Peg's had us do an exercise where we're in a conversation with someone and they're asking us questions and we can only answer in one of two ways, either I don't know, or I pass. So a question, for example, might be, um, did you have a mother and father? Or do you have five fingers on your hand? Or, And it's interesting, the questions that you, you can't say, I don't know, because it's just like so important to you. And I mm -hmm. think Peg, Peg's was, um, do you have a son? And she couldn't answer it. I don't know if she had to say, I pass. 
but you try not to say I pass. You try to say I don't know to every question. It's a fun thing you can do with someone. Hmm. Oh, we just have one more paragraph. Yes. While emptiness is what's left when you take away the thoughts and beliefs that you have constructed around an event, not knowing is a way to move in the absence of such thoughts. It's a creative possibility. Not knowing who you are allows you to meet an event without pretending it is something else, something that happened before. Then you might experience just what is happening, something unpredictable, delightful, dangerous, safe, eating a taco or walking down the street. That's it. You know, um, I have to say, you know, since doing this practice, you know, I hear all the time, um, what is that? Beginner's mind and stuff. And I know for me, we are... We are creatures built on the past, right? Like everything we engage in is built on stuff that based on our interaction from the past, it's not really the present. And I know it's, um, how do you call it? Efficiency that, you know, we, we live based on the past, right? Like I engage with a cup as a cup because of my experience with it in the past and my engagement with a pen or pencil or each of you on the Zoom is from the past. And to come into it with um, beginner's mind is to just like not labeling anything and just experiencing. But if I woke up every day to with beginner's mind and not, you know, I'm like, well, how would I get to work? You know, is that a bus? How do I, you know, it's so I see the efficiency of it. And yet to mindfully um, decide what I'm engaging with beginner's mind is the tricky thing you know for me like and um like when I come to the the meetings or groups I I come with it with a fully open mind because I want no labels and I I want to hold no expectations so I, I when people ask well what do you expect to get out of it I don't know surprise me you know it's I come with no so again I think it's for me this whole thing is um, a mindful living, a, a, a deliberate um, choosing, right? Choice of how to um, move in this world with freedom because we're, I'm choosing by choice not to um, where I choose efficiency over um, like th- or, or discomfort um there are times when not knowing is uncomfortable but I embrace it as long as it's not uh let me see you know what I mean right I don't have all the words this is going to be lengthy but I think you guys get my gist like that we are you know time travelers (laughs) so that's it I think Starlet and Nelda want to say something. Kim, can we read the Shin Shin Ming sometime? Is that the one that says, do not lose yourself in the world, do not lose yourself in emptiness? I find it stunningly beautiful if we could do that. 
that that is something that helped orient my oh someone's coming with a knife and they look like they're high on drugs and you know, it, that balance it's all balance isn't it it's all living in the world and also living with open possibility that's all that yeah that and i've be- always made assumptions about the emperor that now um i question reading the john tarrant he has a what, different what kind of what do you mean assumptions well that he was kind of dumb and stupid and and completely clueless and i do remember that that i did read or hear somewhere that that he became a pretty enlightened guy as as you know it wasn't that this meeting was was uh without any purpose so Bodhidharma was his teacher and did exactly what was needed. I think Nelda, you kind of alluded to that. Scarlett has her hand up. Um, so I want to make two very different comments, but I think they are related to what we have read today and talk. So the thing, the very last paragraph was very enlightening to me because the way I understood it is that he faces every moment to come, so the near future, as a way of embracing uncertainty. That's the part that scares me the most, not knowing what's gonna happen next is there going to be something bad coming? Is, is it going to be some? If it's something good, I don't have a problem. But <laughs> if something bad is coming, <laughs> you know, life that really scares me. Not knowing and the change. But in his case, he embraced it as a way of. As as a as. He, he faces it as a way of freedom and at the same time, how good is, is it that I don't know what's going to happen next? And I can find joy in that. Peg wrote, just let me, Peg wrote me something the other day. She said, be curious and flexible. And I've been thinking a lot about that, which is the alternative, right? Mm-hmm. For me being worried. Be curious yeah. and flexible. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it is. I never thought of looking at life this way. So this is really eye-opening for me. I hope I can get to do that, (laughs) but I think it's going to need some work for me. Uh, So, and then the other thought that I wanted to share is from my own personal life. I have CRPS, so... Mm -hmm. The thing is that I cannot think of moving. If I'm going to get a glass of water, just thinking I'm going to get a glass of water raises my pain levels. If I think I'm going to be going to the kitchen, that would raise my pain levels even more because this illness is about pain. 
and the body, the brain is trying to keep you not moving because you're hurting and basically it thinks, oh, you're about to move, so I'm gonna raise the pain level so you can't. So I had to learn a trick and that is if I am going to move, I have to imagine somebody else. So instead of thinking, I'm gonna get me a glass of water, it would be someone else is gonna get me a glass of water. It tricks the brain into allowing me to move without any raise in my pain levels. That's neat. It, it, it is, but it's hard to do. And it took, it has taken me a long time to get to this point that is automatic for me now. But there's another trick that is the one that I believe applies to tonight. And is that if I know that I have to go from here to there, the brain is gonna be raising the pain levels. So the thing is that I can, my brain can go, oh, is it gonna hurt? to go from here to there. And the trick on that is to answer, I don't know. Until I try walking from here to there, I will not know the answer to that. So, so then, that's an, another, another way of doing this rather yes. than doing the third person thing. Exactly, because the point is when you answer, I don't know, the brain has to wait to make the decision, okay, did it hurt or not? And then you are actually able to move that distance without any pain levels rise. And when you get to where you wanted to go, you tell the, the brain, well, you see, nothing happened. It's okay. So I told, I as part of the conversation with Peg, I told her that my sister when she was dying, just approached it with curiosity. She was saying like, what's this big deal about death? We don't know what it's like. I'm so curious about how it's going to be. And uh, and then Peg wrote, uh, you know, she was a bodhisattva. <laughs> uh, but she was so, my sister was just so lovely in that way. That uh, was, she? It, she she had a sharp mind, that's for sure, and quick wit with that remark. And, and but she she uh, wouldn't take anyone's word for things. She wouldn't take anyone's word for what death was. You know, she people make such a big deal out of this. I don't know what it is. I'm going to find out. Well, one could say that all the authorities on the subject aren't talking. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. So the thing is that to me, what we have been talking about today, or a lot of it, is that thing of, I don't know. I don't know how much it's going to hurt or if it is going to hurt or if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. And the problem is that we don't answer, I don't know. We just go and immediately zero in or, oh, no, this is going to be bad or this is gonna be good. When if you answer, I don't know, you still are, are going to live through it and you're going to enjoy it or it's gonna be horrible, or it's going to be, but you're not creating that expectation that is making it worse. 
it's amplifying the feeling. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Starling. Well, should we call it a night? Yes, let's. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Good night. Good night.